welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, it's Maz here. Just a short note before we get to the chat with Andy Norman. We actually recorded this conversation at the end of January, and I had originally planned to release it by the end of February. However, due to the invasion of Ukraine, and my pivot to cover this extraordinary and grossly unjust act, I've held off releasing this conversation. Having said that, I find Andy's book and insights to be even more relevant now. As I've discussed in my previous conversations with the likes of Peter W. Singer and Carl Miller, we're seeing the effects of misinformation play out both in the West as well as in non-Western countries such as the BRICS nations and Africa. Hence, given the growing global tensions, arming ourselves against mental parasites seems to be more important now than ever. I hope this episode gives you some ideas about how to do this for yourself and to help those around you. Lastly, I want to thank the two most recent Patreon supporters of the podcast. Thank you, Andrew and Shane. Your support will go a long way towards sustaining and growing the show. Okay, that's enough for now. Let's get on with the episode with Andy Norman. My guest today is Dr. Andy Norman, who is the award-winning author of Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Andy has also published in outlets such as The Scientific American, Psychology Today, Skeptic, Free Inquiry, and The Humanist. He also recently appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast, The BBC's Naked Scientist, and The Young Turks. His research eliminates the evolutionary origins of human reasoning, the norms that make dialogue fruitful, and the workings of the mind's immune system. He champions the emerging science of mental immunity as the antidote to disinformation, propaganda, hate, and division. Currently, Andy directs the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University and is the founder of CERC, the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative. Andy, it's a pleasure to host you on the Voices of War. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's my pleasure, Maz. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I've recently finished your book, and, and to say that it's timely would be a gross uh, understatement. I think it's uh, so relevant in today's uh, interconnected world that we start exploring how our minds can be infected uh, by bad ideas. Uh, so firstly, well, thank you for publishing it. I think it's, it, well, it's a really timely, timely book. Thanks. One, one doesn't go into the philosophy business because one expects to get a lot of attention uh, or a lot of pop uh, media coverage. But it uh, turns out the stuff I've been thinking about for a long time is very much on people's minds. So maybe I'm, I lucked into the lucked into the lucked into this. Absolutely. Well, I think just the fact that you were on Joe Rogan, I think, uh, uh, is an indicator of that and, and how broad that audience would have become uh, after speaking to him. Yeah, well, that was that was a fun way. That was my very first podcast uh, after the book launched. Uh, in fact, I, I met with Joe on the, the day my book uh, came out uh, in stores. So, oh wow, that was kind of a nice way to start start this 
run. Yeah, and a rather long podcast uh, <laughs> as your first one. That would have been uh, rather exhausting. So uh, no, it was, it was obviously I've listened to it. I, I thought it was great. Uh, so yeah. Thank you. Uh, but before we delve into the book, maybe we can just find out a little bit about uh, uh, you know Andy Demand. So how ha- how did you even get into philosophy? Uh, and then of course this, I guess, uh, emerging new way of communicating philosophical ideas. Yeah. So. Um... I went to college firmly expecting to study physics or some very sciencey thing because mm. I wasn't very good at you know words and emotions and that kind of thing. Okay. Um. And and then I I took a course where it became clear to me that our species is remarkably clever in the kind of things we can invent and and do. Um. But this particular course left me with the feeling that our wisdom, our cleverness has far outstripped our wisdom. We've, we have, we've developed amazing powers through our technologies, and we don't seem to have the wisdom to wield them um, with our long-term best interests in, heart, uh, in mind. Mm. So, so I remember I was bellyaching about our species, sorry, last lack of wisdom, and a, my friend turned to me and said, hey, Andy, quit complaining and do something about it. And so I declared my philosophy major the next day. Philosophy, as you may know, derives from the Greek for lover of wisdom. Mm, mm, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I, I guess I descend from a long line of people who think that it's really important that humanity find ways to become a little bit wiser mm. each, each generation. And I think we're, we're behind the eight ball right now. We've got some catching up to do. So hopefully my work can nudge us a little bit in that direction. Absolutely, but I think you, you know, at the start of uh, that reply, I think you, you've you've stressed that you know the technology and we are exceptionally clever and smart, but the wisdom uh, is lacking, and our modern relationship with technology is probably to blame uh, to our current, I guess, predicament uh, in many more, in more ways than one, I suppose. Yeah, and of course, Yuval Harari, whose book *Sapiens*, you may know, and your, your audience may know, you know, he he's really worried about how our ability to edit the human genome, how artificial intelligence, I mean, th- these are enormously powerful technologies and mm. they're getting better so fast. Mm. Um, and we still seem to be bumbling along in terms of our ability to handle the ethical questions that would allow us to, to use those technologies wisely. So, yeah. Yeah, and and this is definitely something I hope to explore. But uh, as we as we dive into the topic, uh, maybe we can start with uh, just getting the main thesis uh, of your book, Mental Immunity, because I think that will be a yeah. nice uh, launching pad for us uh, to delve into some deeper questions. Perfect. Yeah, it's it's really quite simple actually. Um, it turns out that the mind actually has an immune system. Um, if you look back at the history of psychology, uh, you start you see that. Scientists began to discover that the mind's way of filtering information behaves very much like the body's immune system. It actually generates antibodies. It can be uh, compromised the same Mm. way the body's immune system can be compromised. Mm. Um, uh, The body's immune system fights off infectious microbes. The mind's immune system fights off infectious ideas Mm. um, when it's working properly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but of course, it doesn't doesn't always. Um, yeah. But it turns out that there are some really powerful ways to enhance mental immune function to 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 become better at spotting the bad ideas and filtering and weeding them out. Mm. And when we do that, we become wiser. Yeah. So um, I believe that this emerging science of mental immunity 
I call it cognitive immunology, that this new science is going to actually show us how we can make concrete, rapid steps towards becoming wiser. Right. Yeah. So, and, and I really like the analogy of, of the, uh, I guess, uh, kind of a, a viral infection. Uh, and probably in today's uh, environment, it's probably a very timely analogy as well for us to realize how it works. Um, and, and, and you're actually touching on a piece of the of my big idea that I, I didn't get to specifically, but uh, part and parcel with this idea of mental immunity is the idea that ideas can spread in a viral fashion mm-hmm. and unhinge our minds. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's becoming obvious in this day and age. Yeah. Uh, and we need to s- take this, the biological metaphor very, very seriously. I think if we're going to get out ahead of this and begin to control the mind infections that are mm-hmm. destabilizing a lot of people right now. Why do our minds get infected? I mean, before we get into the kind of how the technical aspects, I mean, what 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 makes our mental immune system, I guess, malfunction or, or vulnerable to, to, to a virus? Yeah, so, so the whole idea that uh, mind parasites are mm-hmm. infecting our minds is kind of creepy, right? It sounds like a you know B-grade horror movie <laughs> premise for a for a cheap horror flick, um, but it's it's actually a more mundane thought than that. Um, I be, um, false ideas inv- invade our minds and sometimes stick as belief. Mm. Sometimes beliefs that don't serve our interests well, or ideas that don't serve our interests well get taken up and applied, or we make false assumptions and Mm. and, uh, do things that harm other people. All of these are familiar kinds of errors. But if you reinterpret those um, as mind infections and the content of the ideas as mind parasites, um, it turns out you get some very powerful uh, tools for strengthening our resilience in the face of them. So in the same way that we had to understand the body's immune system to, to develop vaccines, we have to understand the mind's immune system to develop um, countermeasures to, to the virulent ideologies that spread yeah. today. Well, as you as you as you refer to it towards the end of the book as the as the mind vaccine, uh, I guess that's what we're that's what we're ultimately looking for. Um, and again, I, I must emphasize the timing of your book is just. Uh, incredible, uh, both in the metaphor uh, or the analogy the use of the uh, vaccine and the virus, uh, but also in uh, the ubiquity of information and the, I guess, openness of our connectivity to just about any idea uh, in the world. Yeah. And, and and this is something that certainly uh, many in my audience and, and certainly my profession of the military, uh, it's certainly something we're exploring. And, you know, mm-hmm. PhDs innumerous have been written on uh, I guess, uh, uh, how people are shaped and influenced by bad information, by bad leaders, by poor incentives uh, that ultimately yes. lead to, you know, genocide, war crimes. Uh, and, of course, even our own wars uh, that we have fought uh, over the recent certainly 20 years, um, mm-hmm. you know, have, have in many ways been uh, uh, driven by, in some cases, very poor information and therefore mind parasites. Absolutely. How does this all relate uh, in your view? Yeah, I, I do think that some of our worst decisions mm. are driven by bad, either bad information. Some of it, sometimes we take on bad information almost willingly, mm. like we're willfully self, self-deceiving. Mm. And, and that becomes, raises a whole set of problems on its own. But many people sort of take on bad information unwittingly and then, and then make mistakes that harm themselves or, or the people they love, right? Um, so I argued that 
this idea that everyone is entitled to their opinion. Mm-hmm. It's commonly spouted by people on the left and on the right. It's almost an orthodoxy these yeah. days. Um, I argue that that's reached the limits of its usefulness as an idea because it now excuses irresponsible thinking and believing. Mm. Um, if I can believe self-serving delusions and and defend myself by just saying, I'm entitled to my opinion, mm. um, I could end up harming others. But but as of course, as soon as we start doing things that harm others, we have response, responsibilities come into play that limit our rights. And so I think it's time we stopped um, aping the idea everyone's entitled to their opinion and start looking more carefully at, at our cognitive responsibility. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. But I mean, just, just to take the, of course, the COVID uh, as a very timely example of COVID crisis, um, how do I confirm what a delusion is, though? Because the, the and the reason I say that is that, of course, I'm, I'm you know, vaccinated, boosted, uh, et cetera. But even in Australia, let's not even talk about the US, uh, we have a, a, a significant part of the population that is completely hesitant to the information that's being served by those who we deem to be figures of authority. Yes. To the point now where they are rejecting the official dominant narrative uh, with some, uh, uh, dare I say it, credible counter information uh, mm-hmm. spouted by quite prominent, in some cases, uh, experts uh, who are basically, you know, showing that, hey, who's or, or asking the question, hey, who's actually delusional here? Is it us, the the, the majority, uh, or us f- few that have uh, seen the light kind of thing? Right. Well, some of these experts are experts um, in the sense of fake experts, right? Um, so it turns out that I think many people are unaware of how many people are act- actively trying to manipulate our minds these mm. days. There are lots of people right now who run really slick websites or who sport really slick credentials who can make a fantastic living for themselves by taking counter culture, by adopting sort of counter narratives um, to sort of official or institutional narratives and gain a following as a result. And a lot of people, when they feel disillusioned with the standard institutions of today, and, and look, I'll be the first one to admit that a lot of the major institutions in America are failing your average American. I've felt mm. that way for a long time. Mm. Um, and so the, the unhappiness is understandable. But when you lurch to the conclusion that science is a hoax mm. or, that the, or that, the, uh, that, the, that the earth is really flat mm. or, or that um, uh, climate change is a hoax, I mean, when you... When you come to distrust the institutions that work so diligently yeah. to arrive at the truth, your mind literally becomes un- unhinged from untethered from reality. Um, you don't any longer have the the anti the mental the cognitive antibodies mm. that a healthy mind does. And in a world where information is so plentiful, it's very easy to become disoriented mm. if you don't have boosted mm. mental immunity. Good, good play on words there. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's, a, and I, I wholeheartedly agree and, and I'm certainly uh, on in that same camp, but what, what I'm also saying is it's not necessarily the, 
you know, wacky, out there, flat earthers, QAnon types. I mean, that's the kind of, and it's, of course, it's like the bell curve, right? So, you know, there's the, the far end of the extreme uh, mm. that, hey, there's just, there's probably no saving those people. Uh, but 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 where I'm kind of looking at is, is, is people who are otherwise intelligent. And I've got some in my, in my immediate networks and even in my family who are otherwise intelligent people who are not uh, anti-vaxxers as we know them, uh, but have... Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, the point that you've you've raised, have fundamentally lost trust in the institutions. And oftentimes, they're, I guess, justified in having lost that trust because institutions have disappointed the everyday, you know, American, Australian, uh, certainly uh, across the West is nothing new. Uh, it, it, it seems to me like the... the uh, and I think you call this kind of in, in the book kind of basic uh, basic thoughts or basic beliefs, uh, or, or in my view, the way I interpret in my uh, head is kind of our underlying assumptions about the world. You know, for example, that, you know, the government has uh, the citizen's best interest in mind. This is kind of, a, a, in my view, a building principle of what a citizen of any nation ought to believe. But when mm-hmm. that's been shaken, and it seems to me like it's been shaken certainly in the U.S. sufficiently to, to be a destabilizing factor uh, for the society. Absolutely. Therefore, everything that's built upon that is then questioned. or Questionable or if, as well. And, in fact, it's thrown out because, hey, if, my belief, if I don't believe that the government uh, any longer has my best interest in mind because it's, you know, profit-driven, it's, uh, uh, it's the, you know, big pharma, it's corporations, et cetera, of course, in all of those, there's kernels of truth uh, because you know we are driven by by incentives. Um, yeah. So sorry. What's what, what's your thoughts on that? How do we? Because th- that that's where I feel is the kind of root of the problem is in these basic underlying assumptions. U.S. far more uh, challenging, I think, in the moment than uh, than probably uh, much of the, uh, the the rest of the West. Mm. Yeah. Look, um, doubts are he- healthy. Um, in fact, I argue in the book that the doubt doubts are literally the antibodies of the mind, right? And it's important to be able to question and test ideas with your doubts. And in fact, that's how you, that's how we keep a lookout for uh, ideas that have problematic features. Um, But our tendency to doubt can be hijacked by exaggerated or hyperbolic um, grievances. Mm. And, and And when it curdles into something called cynicism or distrust, and it becomes sweeping and indiscriminate. So it, look, it's it's much easier to say it's all a big conspiracy, yeah, yeah, than to say, yeah, okay, you know, the media is a complex animal, and sure, there are conflicts of interest all over the place, but there are many competing. Right? It's much easier to accept a simple conspiracy theory than, than the complex reality. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a convenient way to dismiss a lot of stuff that you don't like. The problem is that's not responsible thinking. Um, so. so Philosophers have been playing with exaggerated doubts for hundreds and hundreds of years. You may remember that Rene Descartes wondered if everything he was. So he did a thought experiment back in like 1700, where he basically said, what if I'm in, in the matrix? Yeah. He, had, he, had a, he, he said, what if I'm dreaming it all up was Descartes' version. But he, it was the 17th century version of, of, the, of the matrix. Um, and what he discovered well, he didn't discover it, but but what he found is that if you doubt everything um, all at once, you have a hell of a time building a real bridge back to reality. It, your, your, your doubts can become so extensive, so sweeping, so corrosive that you literally, your mind literally becomes unmoored. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and lots of people are being swept up today by exaggerated doubts and cynicism. In fact, some people are manufacturing cynicism as a as a technique to hijack mind. And and think about this too. It's possible to weaponize doubt. Um, it's not just that there are information warriors out there who are weaponizing falsehood. There are also people like, I would nominate Tucker Carlson, uh, the Fox News anchor here in the US, where he says, well, I'm just raising questions about, about things. And he uses innuendo to slyly suggest that the Biden administration is doing something underhanded. I'm not saying anything here. I'm just raising questions, is mm. what he says. Mm. But it's patently manipulative way of, of, ex- of inducing cynicism into people. And when people become cynical, they become easily manipulated. Yeah. And and that's we need to protect ourselves. And I think we need to protect each other by learning how to boost our minds' immune systems. I think by doing this, we can become next level critical thinkers. Yeah. Critical thinking is great, but it's it gives us like this much protection. Um, real cognitive immunity gives us like this much protection. Yeah. So that's the world I'm trying to build where we have four to five times the level of critical thinking and that it's just so utterly normalized that cognitive contagion just doesn't happen. Yeah. And that simple narratives are, are rarely, if ever, the solution. And that, that's that's ultimately the reason for this podcast. Uh, my focus is on war and conflict, but this is absolutely an intimate part of it because, you know, the mind is the driver behind it. The, I guess one of the one of the things that I'm still struggling with to, to to understand is, you know, and I've had debates. I consider myself to be somebody who's broad thinking. I read a lot. I watch a lot. I've studied a lot. Um, I, I consider myself a, a, a an eternal learner, and I'm open to new ideas. And I try to be. Of course, I'm biased in my own views, undoubtedly, as we all are. Uh, but then when I speak to people, particularly on the kind of COVID. Um, crisis and, and, and the pandemic uh, challenges, oftentimes they are far better informed than I ever could be in the sense that, and, and, and here I, I draw on some thinking uh, by uh, Sam Harris, who I know you've acknowledged in your book as one of the kind of uh, influencing thinkers uh, of yours. Uh, you know, he makes the argument, we, we have people like even Joe Rogan, who you've uh, been with recently, um, has had questionable experts who have on paper credentials uh, and can talk the talk and really sound profoundly uh, knowledgeable about the topic. Uh, of course, yeah. Brett Weinstein uh, is another one who is another, you know, one of these people who's incredibly intelligent, incredibly articulate, uh, but is sowing the seeds of doubt in, again, or, 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 or providing that confirmation bias uh, for anybody who might even loosely be doubting what the main narrative is. Uh, and, Sam right. Harris, and Sam Harris makes a really good point. He doesn't want to have people like, he doesn't want to go see Joe Rogan or doesn't want to have Brett Weinstein on the on his podcast because there will be, you know, Brett Weinstein can pull out 50 counter, counter facts uh, that one would never have the time uh, to, to, to dedicate to research, which, and I've, and, I've, and I've seen that happen to myself because I've, I've spoken to people who, Oh, but you didn't see what happened. Did you read about the paper that, uh, you know, the Italian foreign ministry put out about the, you know, the impact of, or did you read about, um, you know, the Israeli study that said X, Y, Z, or, well, no, you haven't. Oh, well, you're not informed, you know, so Mm -hmm. how, you know, you're just, you're just, you're just brain, you're calling me brainwashed. You're the one that's brainwashed. You're just swallowing the the narrative. You know, you need to read more. Uh, And, 
and I'm caught out thinking, well, oh my God, where do we go from here? Because <laughs> there is yeah. no way out, you know? You know, one of your countrymen, a guy named Joe Velikovsky, who mm-hmm. does some really interesting thinking about this, he, he um, taught me about Brandolini's law. And I think, I think I'm getting this right, but it's something like the amount of work taken to to fight back against bullshit is an order of magnitude greater than the effort needed to generate bullshit. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. I, I, and that's, and I think that's part of the problem because it, it validates the bullshitter basically, because you know, the one that's countering the bullshit just doesn't have the time or the scope or the, the energy to go and follow down every, yeah. Down every rabbit hole that, uh, that, you know, is presented. So, so a very good friend of mine is a philosopher of science who studies science denial, and he actually went undercover at a flat Earth convention, um, <laughs> wow. and he 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 cornered uh, you know an ardent flat earther and actually took him out to dinner and and uh, they he tried to get through to this guy and it became clear that his identity was wrapped up with this whole gig that he was milking and that he couldn't admit that his reasons were kind of self serving. I mean, it was ultimately self serving wishful thinking masquerading as 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 responsible scientific thinking but the guy the guy wasn't dumb right he was clever you can be enormously intelligent but not use your intelligence in the right way to become wiser mm. and this is and this guy was a perfect example of that so um i don't have any trouble believing that you know there are extremely bright people in your family who've been who've been knocked off kilter by some of the uh, bullshit that's out there mm. Right now, you can find bullshit to support almost any view on the internet. Um, yeah, and and, and so he, he, one of the recommendations in my book is that the true test of a reasonable belief isn't whether you can find some evidence for it; it's whether you can beat back all of the the really good questions or challenges that might be posed to it. Mm. Now, as you point out it can be really hard to beat back all of the questions and challenges that arise when bullshit is swirling around us, Mm. when Mm. fake facts are gain currency. So if the information environment becomes full of toxic sludge, it becomes harder and harder to think well, becomes Mm. harder and harder to spot the the good idea, the bad ideas and, and weed them out. Mm. Mm. Um, And so almost, I think almost everyone Thought that the internet was going to usher in an age of openness and enlightenment and everything, and and here it turns out it's it's rapidly descending into a dystopian nightmare in some ways. Mm. Uh, we got to turn it around fast, and I think the key the key to doing that is to building our immunity to nonsense. And how, how do we do that? I mean, and particularly at scale because we are countering, uh, and even just in the information operations or cyber domain. I mean, we're countering in many ways also bots that are that are infinitely more powerful and fast than any human ever could be right they, they, they are pushing out misinformation for the sole purpose of destabilizing and we know this of you know uh, countries like china and, and russia and certainly in, in the case of the us but of course western europe uh, we see this now in ukraine uh, where misinformation and the is used purely for the for the reason of of of, of lifting levels of anxiety uh, which yep. of course, when you when there's anxiety and anger, you know you then look for simple solutions, uh, and and that's and you, you know, also look for enemies, right? You 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 look you you start pointing fingers at your own countrymen. Yes, and and yes. and the and the Russian 
the Putin regime in Russia is quite deliberately sowing discontent in many Western countries. Uh, and I don't know if Australia counts as a fellow Western country, but I think it'd be that. Yeah, way. absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely uh, does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been watching with increasing horror as the level of of uh, decision making in my country has has declined in over, over decades, and I, I, it's really alarming. But it also lends support to this thesis I'm developing that the mind's immune system can gradually become unhinged, mm. um, and and just in the same way that a mind has systems to protect itself against mis and disinformation cultures do as well so we can actually talk about cultures as having immune systems mm. and it's mm. quite clear that certain subcultures think of the subculture of QAnon mm. have immune mental have the cultural immune system in the QAnon community is completely haywire i mean it, mm. it has broken down entirely mm. Mm. so well, what do you what do you mean by the culture culture can be an immune system can you just uh, explore that a little bit more yeah well so cultures have have mechanisms for for limiting the transmission of bad information think fact checkers mm -hmm. and journalistic integrity um think about uh oh uh i don't know if if social media companies actually implemented algorithms that um reduced the exposure to misinformation that might be another element of a cultural immune system right, mm, mm, mm. Um, right. Well, I mean, think about uh, think about a culture's media literacy. So, if a culture institute media literacy training for all young people, mm. they're strengthening the culture's immune system. Mm. Does that make yeah. sense? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, in that case, then I mean, is it not fair to say that you know, of course, QAnon is 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 the kind of you know the extreme, but is it not fair to say that even our culture, then, as in our even our, our consumption of media more broadly, has also been corrupted by Poor incentives, because that's perhaps part of the problem, right? That you know, yes. not only so. So, so if we look at you know our kind of dominant narrative and QAnon is you know there are of course more, but there's two cultures. Mm -hmm. Indisputable from where I stand is that you know QAnon has gone off into a whole new world, right? I mean, off that's just end, yeah. off the deep end. Um, but of course, then our culture also has a cold. Undoubtedly, as in the dominant culture, which is then fueling the the fever uh, that is uh, that is really kind of wrapping up uh, QAnon. So, so it's not just only dealing with QAnon, which of course, you, you know, in oftentimes it, you're going to do more harm than good trying to trying to bring these people across. Uh, but if, it seems to me then to you know combat our current uh, illness, disease, mental disease. Also, we need to cure the cold of our dominant culture, which is, has been undoubtedly, I mean, the poor incentives in the media. Uh, and of course, the algorithms in social media, are, 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 you know, it's a well, well established. Yeah, no, I think you're right. The, 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 the incentives have become extremely perverse. So think about, uh, there, there was a study that found that something like 60% of all COVID misinformation stems from just like 12 um, <laughs> purveyors. I don't know if this is in the, in the country, in our country or the world, but, mm -hmm. but, but basically a very small number of people who spread COVID misinformation are getting rich off this because they, their YouTube videos are viewed so often and their websites get so much traffic and they're invited onto so many, uh, podcasts and radio shows that the media e ecosystem echoes them. Mm. 
Mm, right. Mm. So, um, yeah, um, w- w- when that happens, when purveyors of outright lies and falsehoods, I mean, some of them are are, are self-deluding, but mm. many others are just getting rich and laughing their way to the bank while they hoodwink yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. Uh, yeah, and, and and that's a that's a I think that's a societal level issue that we somehow need to address. Um, there was a, uh, a a QAnon follower who, in the wake of the January sixth insurrection here in the U.S., um, announced the scale sort of fell from their eyes, and they said, "Oh, you know, Q played us." Mm. Um, and then another Trump supporter who listened to Trump say. Um, let's head on down to the Capitol and I'll be there with you. Mm, mm. Um, and then when time came for Trump to actually, well, Trump didn't follow them down there. That's and right. No, it wasn't left, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he left many of those insurrectionists hung out to dry. Mm. So one of them concluded, you know what? Trump played us. And I argued that right now there are a lot of actors out there who are deliberately manipulating our minds because they understand how to hijack mental immune systems better than we know how to protect them. Mm, yeah. But if we but if those of us who care about you know civilization civility and kindness and um and and a better future for our children and grandchildren, if we get together and actually fight back by boosting our own and each other's mental immune systems, then these bad actors are not going to be able to manipulate us and, and laugh all the mm. way to the bank. And what role do you think um institutions having this and and i mean because when we that's a really interesting example i mean you know 12 uh sources equal 60 percent of the the you know information consumed that's that's incredible and incredibly dangerous but and and one would then have a reasonable argument to say hey we should just cut off those sources and you know stop them from uh having the ability to share but then of course we're coming into the dangerous part of censorship cancel culture all of these things that are then, of course, you know, fueling, deplatforming, right? All of these things is then, well, it's 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 pouring fuel on the fire because hey, we, that of course they're going to censor him or her because you know it's a, it's they're speaking the truth or whatever, right? And, and then you, and then you have things like I mean, this is it's almost comical because it's so useful to the counter narratives. People like uh, mm. I forget the name, but he was uh, he was is now the. Uh, uh, what was the CEO of Reuters is now on the board of Pfizer, for example, right? And of course, Reuters is fact-checking Pfizer. And, and I mean, these are these are facts because they're there, they're black and white. Um, of course, it's taken out of proportion. You know what? 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 There's corruption at the top, or there's you know. The, you can create like, the appearance. You can it. really create a, a narrative that is just just the mind boggles uh, at yes. you know the level. So yeah, ha- what, what's your thoughts on all of this? Yeah. Um, let's see. Take me back to the beginning of what you were saying there. I I lost my train of thought. Yeah. So where I was going with it is is the fact that we, we we're faced with the reality that we need to prevent bad information going out there. Uh, but how do we um, do it without censorship? You know, cancel culture and in, in, in these types of things. Good. So there are fundamentally two ways to halt to prevent bad information from spreading. You can try to halt it at the source. And that means trying to silence the person trying to spread it. Or you can um, improve the critical thinking skills or the mental immunity of the of the re- recipient of the bad information. And for the most part, we should be trying to beef up our mental immune systems and our resistance to bad information, because that's far preferable than trying to 
uh, take away the speech rights of, mm. of the dif- disinformation spreaders. So first and foremost, my commitment is to maintaining freedom of speech and limiting the damage by boosting mental immunity. That, that, that I think, ought to be the focus of our efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I, it's not clear that that will be enough. Um, and I, I'm as big an advocate of, of the First Amendment and freedom of speech as I think anyone. But having studied the question philosophically, I know that you can't be an absolutist about free speech any more than you can be an absolutist about anything else. Because if you're an absolutist about free speech, you have to say that it's okay to yell fire in a crowded theater, mm. but it's not. If you're an absolutist about free speech, you have to say it's okay to incite people to violence, but it's not. So the fact is there are limits to I mean, that the worship of free speech can become pathological. Mm. As a culture, we've emphasized speech rights to the exclusion of speech responsibilities. And if we don't correct for that imbalance, dangerous information and 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 that is that is not a contradiction in terms dangerous information exists mm. um it could very well um send us back into another dark age mm. um i i think there's a very strong argument for deplatforming people who abuse look there's no reason why peddlers of disinformation should get huge platforms to spread their bullshit yeah we certainly don't have an obligation to give them huge platforms yeah yeah of course and i think this is the 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 idea of you know with great uh uh, power comes great responsibility and this is this really applies to um a lot of these i mean nowadays really social media companies did you just quote (laughs) spider-man hey popular culture right (laughs) i'm with you right there with you (laughs) exactly see one of the things that uh, i really want to touch on now is 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 you you talked about reasonable ideas and and we need to hone our skills in figuring out what is reasonable can you define or how would you define reason or our ability to reason uh because as as i kind of mentioned in our kind of initial exchanges there's a couple of things i'd I'd really like to uh, unpack uh, about this idea of reason so i think that our concept of reasonable fills a really important role in the ecology of of our thinking. Mm. Um, We basically need a way to sort out the responsible ideas from the irresponsible ideas, the responsible thoughts from the irresponsible thoughts, Mm. the responsible beliefs from the irresponsible beliefs. We need a way to do that. Um, And and the concept of reasonable helps us um, imagine what that's like. What the concept of reasonable suggests is that we have to test our ideas with reasons in some fashion. Mm -hmm. And if it passes the test, then you attach the label reasonable to it, and then you're allowed to use it in your thinking, in in your justifying, in your policy, in in the construction of public policy, et cetera. And so on, yeah. But if you but if you test an idea and it fails the test, then we slap the word unreasonable on it. And that means, you know what, you're not entitled to to sling this around or or share it as though it was a responsible Conclusion. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and what makes something then reasonable? What are the what are the necessary conditions for it to be reasonable? And and so philosophers have been wrestling with this question for twenty four hundred years. <laughs> what are the signs? What are the what are the telltale features of a genuinely reasonable belief? Mm-hmm. So for about two thousand years, philosophers have been uh, 
just fascinated by the idea that the the true test of a reasonable belief is if there's a good proof for it. Mm-hmm. So if there are really solid reasons and they can be traced all the way down to foundations, that's the true test of a reasonable belief. Yeah, that, That's a very common view that goes back to the philosopher Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, I argue in the book that that view is actually mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that view exacerbates our pronistic confirmation bias. It makes us actively look for the proofs to support the beliefs we want to we wanna believe. Mm. Yeah. What we actually need to do is we need a more rigorous way to check for wishful thinking. And the way to do that is to listen to the questions and challenges of others who can spot mm. our own blind spots better than we can. Mm. And only hang on to that belief if we can fend off all of the good questions. Yeah. So I call this the Socratic test of reasonable belief. Can you answer all the really savvy questions that might be posed Mm. to your belief? If yes, it's okay to treat it as reasonable and responsible. If not, probably ought to take it with a grain of salt and and be a little bit less, at least a little bit less certain Mm. Mm. in your views. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And and I just want to I don't want to say push back a little, but I just want to bring in some other thinking. And that's, uh, and I've mentioned it in our, in our exchanges, is The Enigma of Reason by um, Mercer and, and Sperber. Um, yes. Yeah. So one, of, and I'm sure you're familiar with their work and, and, and their definition of reason being basically a, a um, social interaction goal that has evolved. It's an evolutionary byproduct. Where yes. reason is, is used for two principal functions. One is to justify my own actions. Right. And I can I can use, you know, and, and we all do this in every everyday life. We find excuses for, you know, I'm a recovering smoker. Right. So a long time ago, I used to smoke. Back then, I could always find reasons why I'm smoking, um, you know, and justify them to myself perfectly easily. And then yeah. the other reason is, is to convince others. Right. So this is part of our social and our group identity and our need to be in a tribe uh, is this. Uh, and, and their argument is quite convincing because we use reasons to convince others that our worldview is is correct and accurate, um, yes. which is which they kind of pulled apart. They, they, they in their book at least they've they've moved reason uh, as a it's, it's a it has a social function as opposed to kind of logic. You know that if then if then if then, uh, and it seems to me like they've really kind of pulled that apart. Um, and in my view, at least, quite convincingly. Uh, so because if I'm if I'm putting if I view everything we've just discussed and and for example COVID uh, through their lens it becomes quite easy to see what they mean, right? That those who are anti-vaccine can justify it so easily, right, to convince each other or, or, or justify their own uh, hesitancy. So I think uh, Hugo and Dan, um, mm. Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, mm. I think, have been, have been uh, spreading a, a very subtle mind virus here. Right. So, okay. Uh, that, no, that's beautiful. I, I'm, and I'm glad to hear it because, <laughs> because I have been in, 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 in some sense, I have actually been infected and I know others have who've read their book because it's, it's a rather convincing uh, uh, argument. So yeah, please. That, that, and so th- these are, um, I think Dan's a sociologist and I think Hugo might be a cognitive scientist of some kind, but in any case, um, I mean, they do, they do some really good work mm-hmm. and they rightly point to the fact that our reasoning is often skewed by social pressures. So we tend to reason in ways that keep us in good standing in our, in our, in, in, in the groups we really want to belong to. Mm. Right. So uh, it turns out our brains actually evolved to keep us um, 
keep our thinking aligned with those in our group. With the group, yeah. yeah. And so groupthink is a real phenomenon. And, and when you use reasons just to rationalize what you want, it's a common thing, but it's not the only way to use reasons. It's possible to actually distinguishing, distinguish reasoning and rationalizing. Okay. Yeah. And say that genuine truth seekers, as opposed to those who are just, just trying to, you know, curry favor with the in-group, mm. genuine truth seekers actually are really sensitive to the difference between reasoning and rationalizing. Mm-hmm. And they reject rationalizing as not as irrelevant. Okay. Yep. Yep. Right. So um, um, Mercier and Sperber had an article that came out a few years before their book. Um, and I, it really got me thinking about this issue. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I spent a few years actually researching the evolutionary origins of the human capacity to reason. And I ended up concluding that reasoning is fundamentally about trying to align the mental states with one another. Mm-hmm. So if, um, if you and I disagree, You mean like cognitive, cognitive dissonance, internal cognitive dissonance, or, or, or between... Um, it's it's more like this. Mm-hmm. So, suppose you and I are driving together to a, a, a destination we both want to get to. Mm-hmm. You're at the wheel, I'm in the passenger seat. You had, and you want to go across um, the 30th Street Bridge. Mm-hmm. So you're heading that way, and I say, hey, whoa... Um, Maz, uh, slow down. That bridge is under construction. You want to head down to the 40th Street Bridge. Mm -hmm. Now, what what happens there? Um, We actually have a difference of opinion about which way to go. We're at odds. I present information, a reason Mm -hmm. that changes your mind. You turn the car around, we go across the 40th Street Bridge, and we get where where we want to go. Mm -hmm. That's the use of a reason to change your mind. I'm actually using that reason to, uh, as a lever to pry loose, okay. to actually shoehorn a new piece of information in. Okay. But, and, and ju- I just want to jump in. Okay. that Wonderful. And I agree. Now, what if that information proved to be wrong, right? Because you've convinced me that you have the reason, right? right? And, and because of my uh, natural and, and human need for... Uh, cooperation and recognition, right? I will say, hey, of course, Andy, uh, you know, you've probably been there a number of times this week. I'll believe you because I want to keep the cohesion. That's my natural inclination. Uh, but what if that information is wrong? And, and, and I'm kind of bringing this now to the kind of day-to-day lives where we've got, you know, and I might even say you're a figure of authority because you've been there a number of times. You have the knowledge, say like somebody like Malone on, on Rogan, right, who is quote-unquote, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. He's somebody whose reasons one could arguably believe. Yes. And, and, and for me to – sorry, just to finish my thought, and, and because I, I have to take – because, you know, I, I can't say that I'm an expert in anything, let alone everything, right? So for me to go and confirm somebody like Malone's reasons would take – PhD after PhD after PhD, right? So dedicating my entire life to confirm that his reasons are right. So therefore, especially when he's somebody with such credentials, he's an authority figure, he comes to somebody like Rogan, who's, again, a a popular social culture figure. These are reasons for me to believe that he has, you know, that that he's right. Down the line, they might prove to be wrong, and they probably will, but (laughs) do you see the predicament? 
I, I do. And, and there's no question that there's some really difficult and complex cases. Like, I, I mean, if I sat down with Malone and tried to counter his every argument, I'm sure I'd struggle, right? Because in part, because there's so much bullshit out there that it's <laughs> yeah. hard to, hard yeah. to, to combat but, it all. But, but um, doesn't it then move our understanding of reason or reasonable? Well, well, let me let's bring it back to the simpler and more everyday case yeah. of the, which way should we go to cross the river, yeah. right? Um, this is a perfectly ordinary everyday case of reasoning, of reason giving, and it works to change your mind so that our thinking becomes and our behavior becomes aligned again, and we can achieve a, a shared task mm-hmm. better because I have used a reason to bring our minds back into alignment. I argue that that's the fundamental reason, sorry, that, that the reason evolved to help human beings do that kind of thing. Yes, and here's the yeah. thing, here's the, no, so notice I am, I am changing your mind and mm-hmm. deliberately changing your mind so that we don't waste time in the, in the, in a traffic jam. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, but it's not manipulative. I'm not actually, I don't have a Machiavellian motive to change your mind so that I can take advantage of you. But how do I know that? As in, I have to trust it. I have to trust it, no? Well, yeah, but let's just assume we have a long friendship and you can't Mm -hmm. trust me. Yeah. The the point is that Sperber and Mercier and Sperber's um, develop a view of reason where reason is fundamentally a manipulative thing. And and that the cases where a more cooperative um, uh, uh, use of reasons is is more the outlier for them. And what I argue in in the paper I wrote responding to Mercier and Sperber is that they they can't be right about that. That manipulative reasoning has to be the exception, not the rule, Mm -hmm. or the practice of reason giving would die out. It would become something we'd never trust each other and we'd stop listening to each other's reasons. Yeah. Okay. So again, it's about the underlying motivation. Yeah. For the most part, mm-hmm. reasoning works when we live in a in a group where, of people we trust, and that you know we tend to trust people who are in a better position to know than we are. Yeah. And it works out pretty well, right? I defer to you because when when you probably know more about the best way to get there, and you defer to me when I probably know the best way to get there, and it works out well for both of us. Mm-hmm. That's the way a complex society shares epistemic. There's, it's a way of dividing up epistemic responsibility. Yeah. So that collectively we're smarter than any one of us is alone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and and reasoning has to work first and foremost as a collaborative way to sync us up um, and only secondarily as a way to manipulate and hijack minds. Mm. And if we keep that in mind, um, it turns out that the Mercier and Sperber's thesis is, is, is off kilter a little bit. Um, Steven Pinker had bas- basically said in the, in the preface to my book that, that I got it right, that, that Mercier and Sperber need, need to um, adjust Revisit. their view. Yeah, revisit their uh, their thesis. Yeah, because of my article. So, uh, thanks, Steve. That that that's uh, I appreciate the validation. I I I would er- I'll send you a link to my paper. Yeah, and you can, and then maybe it'll cure this mind infection. That uh, they- absolutely, and I'll actually and I'll share it on the on the notes as well because I think it's. Um, I mean, I I, I can't say I, I I looked at their work through that lens uh, in in the kind of a more. I never, I didn't pick up on the on the sinister notion of it that it's about manipulation. I, I always looked at it when I read their book was that 
you know, it's 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 a product of evolution in the sense that it is about cooperation because we are we need to reason with each other in order yes. to achieve social goals, um, and and that's well, that's how I that's how to do it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm presenting the kind of the simple version of mm-hmm. the conflict. It, it, mm-hmm. it, there's a great deal of insight in, in their work, mm-hmm. and they're quite right that social tensions are part of what makes reasoning what it is. Yeah, um, and so he, they. Uh, in my original paper on this, I basically said Mercy and Sperber are mostly on the right track, but they need to tweak their view in this way. But the emphasis becomes quite different. And, and notice that where the view that reasoning is fundamentally a way to be used to manipulate each other's minds, that produces cynicism, the very mm-hmm. cynicism that undermines trust, the very cynicism that makes thinking go haywire. My view, which is that reasoning is fundamentally more cooperative, doesn't have that defect. Mm, mm, okay. Yeah. And so now we apply, absolutely. Now we apply that on the macro scale, right? So, so it's about, you know, and when we're talking about our institutions having failed us and, you know, wrong information and wrong actions being taken by institutions, if we take away the manipulative component, but kind of give it, give it, look at it with the, with the most gracious set of eyes we possibly could that, hey, everybody makes mistakes, but they're doing it with the, you know, anybody that's in, in power leading a country. You know, or yeah. at least you know some of the more uh, well-established countries and democracies, we have to have the underlying assumption. Again, we come back to the underlying assumptions that they're doing it for the right reasons, despite the fact that they might make wrong decisions. Yeah, I think it's really so. Philosophers call this the principle of charity. If you really want to learn from people, you go in assuming they, that their their hearts are in the right place and that they're they're being honest and fair-minded with you. Yeah. Um, we try to assume that as much as possible. Now, sometimes that assumption of that the, the trust we extend to people that way can leave us ripe for manipulation. But it turns out that our ability to think together degrades rapidly when we lose trust. And when large communities of, of mutually trusting thinkers like scientists come together, they can do so much more to illuminate mm. the way the world works than when you have a lot of petty, petty squab, uh, tribes squabbling with each other and backbiting and, and, and mutually suspicious. There's yeah. a lot of trust built into the way science works, and it's part of what makes science work, work so well. Yeah. What, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, I, I think I know the answer, but I'll just give you the space to... to... Well, just so um, every scientist who earns their stripes has to really work hard to develop a specialty where they've actually can see further and more clearly than, than, than anybody else. That that's the test. That's how you, you gain and you get a doctorate in the process. You learn that there are a hell of a lot of other areas where you're not an expert. Mm. And you know what, when it comes to quantum physics, I defer to the quantum physicists. Yeah. When it comes to chemistry, I defer to the chemists um, and so on and so on and so on. I've, I've developed a very narrow expertise in epistemology and I think I can apply it. Um, I, th- I think I have some things to say there, but you don't gain that kind of expertise without learning a lot of humility. Mm. Mm. And and a well-functioning community um, has people who are confident where their expertise is, is uh, high and who are humble <laughs> where it's not. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a whole lot of junk on the internet that gets people to be passionately confident in stuff they have no business being confident about. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a, a wonderful because that's one of the ways I've tried to reason with people, uh, you know, when they throw a 
thousand and one facts at me, say about uh, COVID, you know, my, my principal defense mechanism is, hey, I, I'm making a conscious choice that I'm trusting those who I conceive as experts who've dedicated lives, lives, their entire lives and lives, countless lives before them that they've built upon to answer this question. So, and this is because, like I said before, I'm not an expert in anything, let alone everything. So I have to trust, or we have over, well, forever, we have trusted those who we deem to be experts. Now we're going haywire because there are, as you said before, you know, questionable experts um, who have the titles and can talk the talk, but certainly are going against, you know, the scientific consensus. I mean, we're in a world where we where follow the science you know, has become a dirty word. <laughs> I mean, it's a, you know, when you say that, you cast out as, oh, you're just brainwashed. Uh, you know, you, it's crazy. Let, let me give you an example. And mm. I have felt the pull of some of these internet rabbit holes. Let me give you mm. one of them. Mm. Um, I, I was diagnosed recently with kidney stones, um, which means that crystals are forming in my kidneys that could, could cause some harm. Um, Last time I had them removed, it was excruciating. Mm. So this time when I was diagnosed, I went online and I looked for way for for uh, food supplements that will dissolve kidney stones. And sure enough, there's some sign. There's some really slick websites out there that say this stuff works, and there they have hundreds of testimonials from people who are passionately devoted to it. And for all I know. They're on to something. Mm, mm. I go to ask my doctor, what about this, this supplement? I've never heard of it. Chances are there's no good clinical study yet. I would toss it in the trash and forget about it. Mm. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. Right. I want to believe in this. Yes. Yes. Stuff, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's quite possible that a vast extended community of people experimenting on themselves can learn things that, that um, lab researchers before lab, the lab researchers do. The biohackers who are out there just trying different herbal supplements are probably going to stumble upon something before the experimentalists. Well, that's yeah. how it started in the first place, right? Before we had science, you know, do, let's try this mushroom. Uh, you know, this one uh, <laughs> might take you to a whole new world. This one will kill you <laughs> or this one just tastes good. Uh, so it's, it's ex experimentation. Yeah. So, I mean, so I can see why people are saying, hey, I can do my own research online and sometimes learn things that'll take my understanding beyond where, where some of supposed experts, my doctor, or, you know, my kidney specialist, whatever. Mm. Um, there are times when I think internet research can actually take you one step beyond what the specialists say, but there are many, many cases where the internet will take you 10 steps in the wrong direction instead of one step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, and that's the dangerous part, uh, because once it's once the specialist has been invalidated once, uh, it's far easier to then start doubting the specialist time and time again, uh, and and I think this and, is yeah, and when yeah. and when those doubts grow out of all proportion and become sweeping ways to kind of feel superior to the entire establishment, yeah. that's a seductive trap. Yeah, I really like the the, the story of Fred, the flat earther, because uh, that speaks to this point. Uh, right. It speaks to the yeah. point that, you know, maybe you can tell the story, but it speaks to the point of, you know, that, you know, the rabbit hole is so deep that if you're in it, you know, it, it's 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 really. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you like the story. So uh, Fred, the flat earther dies and goes to heaven mm. um, and he gets a chance to chat with God. And he says, God, I've been a flat earther my whole life. I have to know. Can you tell me now? 
is the world flat or is it round? And God says, I'm sorry, Fred, but the world is very, very round. Mm. And Fred looks at him and says, this conspiracy goes higher than I thought. <laughs> yeah, but that's, and this isn't, isn't that the truth of it, right? I mean, because that's the, so my question then is what, what makes someone more, some of us are more vulnerable than others, obviously, right? Mm. Because there are correlations uh, and there's a lot of research as to, you know, what makes people more vulnerable to, conspiracy theory or uh, theories or conspira conspiratorial thinking. What are some of those uh, that, that, that you're aware of? Yeah, so being disaffected, being hopeless, feeling like you don't matter, um, feeling lonely, disillusioned, all of those things are contributors. Um, I argued that, so, so those are some of the larger sociological or psychological factors. Um, but I argue that if we want to examine the matter closely, we'll actually look at the way a person's mind's immune system works. So um, if I start, if, so here's a real, there's a really interesting study out of Canada that says that if you, if you're tempted to discard the idea that beliefs should change in response to evidence, suppose your faith tradition mm -hmm. demands that you say, evidence isn't all that. You know, um, and it's certainly not the hallmark of responsible belief because my faith tells me that it's more important to, yeah. to believe this, that. It, once you accept that, your mind's immune system, there's evidence now in this, your mind's immune system gets weaker and you become more prone to conspiracy thinking, yeah. more prone, you become a, a mark for propagandists. Manipulative advertisers um, are have an easier time uh, hoodwinking you. Mm. So, so just um, to confirm, so so you're saying religious thinking, and I think you, you you talk about this in the book, but religious thinking makes you more more prone uh, to this stuff. Um, I do, and and, and I, I I don't offer that with a uh, with any pride or, or or and I I don't want to say that in a way that disrespects uh, many of my religious friends. I, I know that that message like that yeah. feels harmful to them, and I'm not trying to be mean-spirited here, but I am trying to illuminate a phenomenon that I think is quite real. Yeah. Um, I think there's actually a lot of evidence from history that passionate religious devotion can unhinge your thinking. I mean, think about religious extremism. Right? This, that's just a small fraction yeah. Of, yeah. of, but, but it's quite, but it's an open question whether more moderate religious faith can weaken your mind's immune system to a, a more modest degree. And I think the evidence is starting to accumulate that it can, and that if we care about mental immune health, if we care about wisdom, we need to rethink what faith means. Mm. Um, I, I, I distinguish in the book between good faith and bad faith. Um, when you use the concept of faith to excuse dogmatic, inflexible belief, I call that bad faith. And I argue that that's bad for your own mind and probably bad for humanity as a whole. Um, but if you're resolutely hopeful and trusting because that's the kind of person you want to be and you think you can help make the world a better place by being resolutely hopeful and trusting, hmm. beautiful. that's a beautiful thing. And that's faith. That's the kind of faith I can get behind. Yeah. Yeah. Those that are stuck in, I guess, the dogmatic sense of, uh, of belief and faith, oftentimes they don't see it because our own confirmation bias tells me that, hey, I'm in the good faith. I'm fighting for humanity against the against the, the hordes that are trying to manipulate you and, you know, buy you and own you, et cetera, et cetera. 
how do we how do we inject them with the mind vaccine? How do we how do we reach these people? Yeah, um, I think it, we should start raising every generation to realize that hitching your identity to a set of beliefs basically sets you up to be closed-minded about certain things. Mm. We shouldn't be teaching people to identify with any ideology. What do you mean? Because I think that that strikes me as profoundly important, almost the crux of it all. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So how about this as an alternative? Instead of saying, these are my beliefs and I'm going to fight for them come what may, because, because you know what? My whole life is about these beliefs. Instead of thinking that way, say, hey, you know what? I have a need to belong and a, a, just like everyone else. So I'm going to find a community of fellow inquirers, of fellow seekers. And instead of holding any particular belief sacred, we're just going to be passionately devoted to learning and finding out and, and trying to find the truth. Hmm. If you... Trade in a belief-based identity for an inquiry-based identity. I think your mind begins to open up, and the and the opportunity to learn at a much rap, more rapid pace becomes is a beautiful side effect of that. Yeah, and and I think this is also how you finish the book. I mean, uh, you you talk about uh, a, a new Socratic method or or an upgraded Socratic method. Uh, maybe we can finish on that. Uh, uh, what do you actually, what do you mean, and how how we can apply it? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so Socrates, of course, was the Greek sage who developed a method that still bears his name. The Socratic method is a process of testing ideas with questions to, and then going in with an open mind to seeing what will happen. So Socrates would wander around and he'd say, oh, really? You think you really know that? Okay, let me ask you a few questions. And then he'd start asking brilliant questions that would soon reduce the person to blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I didn't know that after all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Socrates would do that and, and, and he would humble people and he made enemies that way, which is why they made him drink poison. And that's how Socrates life came to an end. Um, but I think the Socrates basic approach, which is to ask clarifying questions with a genuinely open mind and a genuinely open heart, and then seeing what happens and being responsive to what happens and being ready to learn from whatever you learn from being ready to learn from whatever transpires in the ensuing discussion. Mm. Um, if you do that and also observe some, just some very simple rules about how to reason fairly. Um, I think our minds become remarkably more resilient mm. to misinformation and disinformation. So, so I take this famous Socratic method, argue it's one of the most powerful mind inoculants of all mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And I soup yeah. it up and say in the same way that uh, uh, immunologists soup up inoculants to get vaccines, I can soup up this Socratic method and make it something that's even more powerful to protect our minds. So, mm. But the heart of it is learn to ask good clarifying questions and to be patient while you explore the many different features of an idea, both good and bad. Many ideas have good features and bad features. Mm. And real honest inquiry tries to look at them all and give each one its due. And if the idea still looks good after you've carefully and, and fairly examined all of its pros and cons, then maybe it's worth relying on. But mm. otherwise, set it aside and look for an, an alternative. An alternative.
What a wonderful, uh, <laughs> what a wonderful view of the world. And I could, yeah, if, if more people thought like that, what a what a wonderful world we'd live in. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> undoubtedly, um, I particularly like the the separation of identity because that uh, strikes me as one that's uh, that you know we need to separate our thinking and our you know the reasons that we embrace from the identity that we choose or, or are brought yes. into. Uh, I, I really, really like that. Um, uh, that's that's a powerful one, I think. Yeah. Uh, Andy, thank you so much. Uh, I know I've, uh, we've gone a little bit beyond our agreed time. Uh, I really thank you very much for giving me so much of your time. It's a wonderful book, uh, and I'll be certainly uh, uh, promoting it and sharing it with, uh, with, with my peers, uh, certainly in Defence Force, because this is, again, a really important aspect. Uh, thank uh, thank you, Maz. I'll, I'll, send you, I'll send you that article, and if uh, any of your listeners uh, want to support my work uh, bringing about the cognitive immunology revolution, please check out our uh, the Cersei website at cognitiveimmunology.net. Um, we, 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 need, we need lots of people to help us if we're going to save the world from infodemics. Absolutely. And I'll certainly be sharing that site uh, and I'll be supporting myself. So uh, uh, on that note, Andy, I just want to throw across to you, um, we've discussed a whole bunch of different topics and uh, perhaps not always as structured as one might have wanted. So I just want to make sure that I haven't... Uh, 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 taking your space to say anything else. Uh, have we covered uh, uh, the main points? This this has been lovely, um, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy uh, with this conversation. I've, I've enjoyed it immensely, and thank you for the chance to, to share my thoughts. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.